Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. We have with us today Patty McCord. She is the author of Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. If you're looking at the video, this is what her book looks like. It's excellent. She uh, served as the chief talent officer for Netflix for 14 years. And if you uh, have seen the Netflix culture deck that was going around the internet, people were looking at it and, and then trying to refashion their own HR departments based on what they were reading in the deck. Uh, Patty was one of the architects uh, of that deck. And, and her book was fantastic. And we're lucky enough to have her on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Patty, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Patty, tell us briefly the story of the culture deck, which sort of started started it all in some ways. Uh, Reed Hastings, who's the CEO of Netflix and I, had worked at another company together before. And we grew through merger and acquisition and eventually our biggest competitor acquired us. And so he made a bunch of money and invested in a lot of startups and Netflix was one of them. And when he decided to be CEO of Netflix, he called me up and said, I want you to come work with me and do this. And I said, no. Um, I thought it was a really stupid idea. I thought DVDs in the mail was the dumbest idea I'd ever heard. Um, and B, and also, I'd where, already... where, where would Blockbuster be going? I mean... Yeah, I mean, it was at that time, DVD players cost $1,000. And like, who are you going to send them to? You and the three other people you know who have DVD players, right? I mean, and second, uh, it was a really tiny company, and I didn't think he needed me. Uh, and third, I, you know, I'd already done a startup with him, so I was consulting. I'm like, you know, call somebody that doesn't know what you're talking about. So I said, why would I want to do this? Give me one reason that would compel me. And he said, this time, what if we were successful? We created the company we always dreamed of. Okay, now that's music to my ears, right? So I say, if you made the company you always dreamed of, what would it look like? And he said, I'd come to work every day and want to work with these people on these problems. Pretty good answer, right? So he says to me, "What? how would it be for you if we created the company you always dreamed of? And I said, would it be cool if we were like a great place to be from? You know, like like if they had Apple on your resume, oh, you're part of the Macintosh team or you're early at Amazon or something like that. Wouldn't that be a cool thing to do? Um, and so we agreed on one thing that we would do, which this time we would write it down. We would write down what a great company meant to us, right? So the first thing we did was we got together with the executives back in the day. And instead of writing down esoteric aspirational values, I wanted to write down behaviors, right? If we said we're candid and open and honest, what did that look like? How could you see it? What would you do if you did those things? I didn't want to talk, write about integrity and have people lie, <laughs> right? You know, I wanted to be like, that's the truth. So that's the first chapter in the Netflix culture deck. We rewrote that in the 14 years I was there six times. Uh, and so every chapter was built on the chapter before. If you go back and read the PowerPoint presentation, it's like distinct segments. And so uh, Reed and I would work on it. The executive team would work on it. We'd send it out to everybody in the company. They could work on it. They could draft. They could add to it. So we worked on it for 10 years. And we were driving to work one day, and Reed said, hey, I met this woman last night. She has this really cool company called um, SlideShare. 
And I'm like, uh-huh. And he goes, and they, they do PowerPoint slides online. I'm like, what a great, that's a great idea. I wonder what people are going to put out there. And he said, oh, I put the deck out this morning. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It was completely an internal onboarding document. This was not the treatise. This was not the, here's how things should work. This is when you joined the company, you sat in a room with Rita and I, and we went through it and said, hey, by the way, here's what you should expect from each other. And I freaked out. I was like, what? When you said transparency, <laughs> that's not what I meant. Yeah. And I said, oh my God, Reed, you're going to scare away all of our candidates. And he said, only the ones we don't want. <laughs> you know, it, um, I wish we had, I wish we had been more deliberate about it, honestly, because once we did it, once it was out there, I, I, we had no idea that it would go viral. We they just had a life of its own. Yeah. But it made, um, it made interviews much richer because we stopped talking about where you qualified and we started talking more about how do you like to work and, you know, here's how it is. And it's like uh, when I remember now we're going back probably 25, 30 years, but when, when in college, when, you know, you have a class and the assumption is everyone's read the book and then you can have a useful conversation about the book. But mm -hmm. if no one's read the book and you're just kind of going over the book, then the conversation becomes less interesting. So once the deck is out there, now I imagine you're sitting there and having a conversation with people that's more interesting about them in relation to what it is. So much, so much. I mean, you know, and, and it got into a lot of subtleties about like – you know, how responsible do you really want to be and how comfortable are you when you get a lot of freedom and are you willing to, you know, speak up when you think things aren't going well and have you ever done that before? And, you know, and, um, how do you think about getting that information out of somebody who's really introverted? Right. I mean, it was just, it changed everything for us. And I'll, and since I've been gone, you know, I've been gone six years now, I now look back at some of those things and I realize all the subtleties around it, right, that, did, that when I was in there, I didn't think about. Like, like for example, we were like uh, adamant about being on time. Like if you were tardy, if you were late for a meeting, it was just like, oh, verboten, right? And, um, and I never thought of that as a value, right? Uh, until I left and I started consulting the companies where CEOs were consistently late on meetings with me. And I'm like, is your product on time? Cause like you, you didn't even show up on time. Um, but you know, it's the, it was the, it was the behaviors. It's how you behave, not what we wrote down. Well, and, and you know, it's funny cause the work that I do around uh, recently, a lot of, cause I have a new book that's, that's out on emotional courage is mm -hmm. about closing the gap between what you say and what you do, right? It's the willingness yeah, yeah. to feel the difficult things. And, and you're really talking about that. You're talking about, you know, an ability to live the values that you state and that you have. Yeah. And it's, and a lot of them, you know, are hard and they take a lot of practice. I mean, to, to exactly what you're talking about, um, you know, I do a lot of conversations around feedback because I hate the annual performance review. Uh, and, and what I say is name one other thing you do once a year in your life that you're good at and said no one ever. Right. I mean, like it just doesn't happen. And so very well stated. And people find me really blunt. Right. And they say when they meet me, oh, <laughs> you're so much nicer in person than you sound in your book. And, and I said, look, 
you know, construct feedback has come to mean constructive criticism, which means telling somebody something they don't want to hear in a nice way, instead of just this honest exchange between us about how things are going, right? That and and how you get better at that as you practice. Right. Talk, talk to us about um, about what it means to be an adult and why. Um, it's so hard for companies to trust people to act like adults, what the risks are. I mean maturity. I, I mean being responsible. I mean um, having an opinion and owning your decisions and um, wanting to make a difference and taking work seriously. And, you know, it's funny because uh, when, you know, last year's uh, talk, word de jour was millennial. Um, I would get all these calls about millennials and they'd, she'd say, you know, the reporters would say, Oh, you don't like millennials cause you only like adults. And I'd say, no, 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 no. There's no correlation. Right. I know plenty of, of adult, mature, dedicated, hardworking 25 year olds. And I know a whole bunch of really immature, you know, sideways talking 45 year olds. Right. So it, it's about the the idea that you're a responsible grown-up coming to work to contribute to something with other responsible grown-ups. That's what I mean by adult. So everybody would say, great. Like, I don't know anybody who would say, you know, who wouldn't agree with you that it's important to have a company filled with adults and it's important to be an adult. Yeah. And yet one of the things that you're saying is companies don't treat us in a way that assumes that we will. Yeah, I mean, some of it comes from the hierarchical tops down uh, management styles of the 60s that have somehow clung to our companies, even though that's not how we operate at all anymore. And I spend, you know, I spend probably half my time with little startups and half my time now with huge corporations who realize they're too slow. Um, and they wonder, how, you know, how can I come in and tell them how to innovate? And I say, well, let's see how many layers of permission do you have to have to get anything done? Well, at least five. I'm like, well, then throw away three. Right. <laughs> and they can't do it, right? I mean, that's somebody's whole job to give you permission. That, like, that's and I, and I say, you know, those those people who are are directing, really, literally telling you what to do. They're not productive. What if you got rid of them and just asked the people to do what they should, right? So um, there's not a lot of – so that's where I think it comes from, right? It's that, that hierarchy that says – and it's it's weird how it's manifested itself now. It also assumes a hierarchy of intelligence, like the smartest people are at the top and, you know, the dumbest people are the more junior people when, you know, I often see the complete inverse because the, you know, people who are fresh sometimes walk into a situation and see the obvious where the person who's looked at it over and over again just can't even conceive it. So I think it's really detrimental and, and it forces, then, then we put in all this structure and all this compliance and all this policy and all these permissions, and we stifle the thing we actually want, which is people who stand up and contribute because they want to. Right. So I 100% I, I agree with you, right? And, and I think that the more we're filled with people who act like adults in organizations, the more successful every organization will be, and there will be healthy debate and healthy conflict and healthy support. Mm -hmm. Um, 
one of the things I see in organizations all the time is people who tend to act in their self-interest or the self-interest of the silo that they're operating in, right? It could be sales, it could be marketing, it could be ops, it could be whatever, um, versus in the interest of the larger organization as a whole. No, it's not, it's not even that. I, I, I'm going to argue it's not even in the interest of the larger, larger organization as a whole. The way, the way you get to selflessness is you act on behalf of the customer or the client, or whoever's using your product. You know, I used to say to my team, yes, we are a service organization. It is not spelled S-E-R-V-A-N-T-S. Right. Right? And the people we serve don't work here. The people we serve are your daughter, right, who, who, who loves Netflix, right? And so then if I looked at my team, I would say, okay, so here's what we're responsible for to serve the customers. We're responsible for having a company full of amazing people that are going to create a fabulous service that's so intuitive that, you know, toddlers can use it with their fingers without reading, right? So think about that. So we are responsible for everything that creates a pipeline for that incredible talent to be here and then get out of the way so that that incredible talent can do, can serve our customers. So that's where, when you, when you pull away all of that, you know, serving the organization and move it to serving the customer, the constituent or the client, that, 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 that's my philosophy. Basically that combined with great place to be from right. changes everything. Right. Right. Those are the two fundamental principles that are like the way I think about work. That's very different than I'll tell you what to think. I'll tell you what to do. And I'll give you permission to do what we think is important at the top. So what gets in the way? Let's just say almost everybody listening to you would agree that that's the way that people should operate. What gets in the way? The way we've always done it. We're just humans are such creatures of habit and they don't see their leadership behaving differently. So, you know, I, I just did a talk in Australia with the executive leadership team of a huge bank. Right. And um, I mean, these this snooty, snooty big bank in Australia. And and I said to them, you know, pick one thing you're going to do differently in this team of 10 people. Show me what it looks like. And then all of you go do it for a week. That's how change happens. Right. And it has to be something that people will notice. Right. Instead of saying when somebody asks you a question, you know, hey, we want to know what you think we should do about this. Just say for one week, well, what do you think we should do about this? And if and if we were me, what information would you want to have to make a good decision? Second question, more important than the first, just do that for a week. Right. Right. And it's, so it's like you and I talked about a little bit earlier. It's it's like, it's practice, right? You have to practice teaching people how to think you have to practice giving up your authority that you've earned. Right. Um, and so that way of doing things is so ingrained in us. And so that my point is people can't be what they can't see. Right. So unless they see other people behaving differently or behaving as adults or taking responsibility or instead of saying, oh, yes, well, let me give you that answer. Instead, probing you for the answer. Th- th- those are the things that have to change. 
So where does fear come in? I see a lot of fear in, in a senior leadership even about almost, you know, almost a response of, can we really do that? Like, can I really let people choose their own vacation schedules? I mean, that's a simple one, but can, can we really, you know, like, are, like, yes, they're super smart people all across the organization. And, and yet, um, do we trust that they really understand and hold the vision the way we hold the vision? You, you know, I think about that bank and I think, you know, I don't know what, what bank it is, but I know that part of the reason there's so much risk uh, compliance in banks is because, you know, one person can bring the bank down. Right. And it's happened for a number of different banks where. You know, oh, they make and, and listen, every every bank I go to tells me you don't understand we're regulated. Right. You don't understand we're regulated. I'm like, does it really it regulates the way you keep track of the work people do? Show me the statute that says that. That's not regulated. Show me the regulation that says you have to do an annual performance review. Show me the regulation that says you have to have paid time off for salaried employees in America. There isn't one. Okay, so let's step back and I'll answer your question. It's about changing the way you manage. And so here's the things you have to be really, really good at in order to trust people and give them responsibility and freedom to do to make their own decisions. Number one, you have to make your deliverables crystal clear. People have to know what goodness looks like. They have to know a time frame. So that's an interesting one. You know, when I go to a startup, I'll say, now, what's your time frame for accomplishing this? First of all, I'll say, tell me your strategy. And almost always they tell me their plan. (laughs) Right. I'm like, that's a good plan, but that's not a strategy. A strategy is what you don't do. So what of all the things that you could do, which things are you not going to do? And does everybody know that? Right. Okay. so give me your strategy. And then when's that going to happen? And they'll say startup guys will go, well, someday. (laughs) And the and the big companies are like, it's part of our five year plan. I'm like, until all that, you know, that shit happened last year that blew up your five year. plan, Right. So um, so so it's about setting really clear deliverables for teams that are wrapped in time frame, who they're serving, what they're delivering, right? So one of it is getting skills around articulating not just the vision, but the deliverables, like what's it going to take to do that? Um, And the second part is that setting of context, right? And that's the hardest part sometimes because the way we're set up is the higher up you go in the organization, the more privileged information you get, right? And so part of your status is that you know something somebody else doesn't know, right? Right. That contributes to your status. I used to say that knowledge is the cheapest form of power, right? I know something you don't know. And, 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 that, and letting go of that is very difficult for people who have spent their whole lives achieving that secret status. But but if you want people to really make their decisions, they need to know everything. I mean, literally everything. And the more you give them, my experience is the more you give them uh, information and permission to know things, even things that are secret, the more they'll keep it secret. Right. Right. Because it's a trust factor. I mean, if you want to build trust, Tell somebody something and go, really, honestly, this is something that if our competitors found out, it would be very detrimental to us. You understand that, right? Because you understand the competitors. You understand what we're building. You understand what our time frame is. You understand what we're trying to achieve, right? This is how we're going to serve the customer. So, you know, make sure that that stays here and people will keep it there. 
I've been fascinated, you know, and these are all experiments at Netflix. I mean, year after year, we try, you know, we went public. What We thought, oh, God, you know, what levels are uh, people are going to be able to see what kinds of information, right? Because it's typically what you do. And instead, we closed the trading window very small and we kept the information flowing and kept our fingers crossed. Right. And by and large, you know, people gave back what we gave to them. Right. Yeah, and it's it's like you you I think a lot of times people put regulation in for fear of that one person. And Yeah, and and isn't that crazy stuff? I mean, it's just that seems so crazy to me. You know, I Well, as leadership, I, mean, I think you have to be willing to say we're we're willing to have that I mean, we're going to put regulation to avoid this one person, you know, toppling the whole enterprise. But there will be people who take advantage of our vacation policy. There will be people yeah, who and don't. And there might be more people that take advantage of your vacation policy than there are people who are that, that 1% that, I mean, reverse the thinking, right? That's what I tell people. I'm like, okay, drive up in your Silicon Valley, get out of your car in your parking lot, look around at all those other cars and all the people getting out of the buses and all the people getting out of the train and say to yourself, yep, coming in to screw me today. Yeah, right. That's what they're, they're not. Well, it's right? that old and thing so, that I, I remember hearing that I really loved, which is when someone was saying, look, what if I train my people? You want me to pay all this money to train my people? What if I train my people and they leave? And, and the, the response was, but, you know, you think of the alternative, stay. right? Think of the fact yeah, that you right. don't train them and they stay, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, so, so that's why I named my book Powerful. Because uh, I hate the word empowerment. I think it's stupid. I think that we don't go around with a magic wand empowering anybody. And the reason why we have to empower them is we took it all away. So let's take the vacation uh, it, uh, example that you gave, right? Um, if you're in finance and you're an important part of month-end close and quarter-end close and year-end close... I would recommend that you probably want to schedule your vacations around the middle of the month or the middle of the quarter or the middle of the year, right? It's probably not really smart if you're in payroll to take to want the first two weeks in January off, even though you never get them off and it doesn't seem fair. What's not fair if you want the first two weeks in January off, pick another occupation, right? Um, so it's so you it's that we called it freedom and responsibility, right? So you're, if you, so let's say, let's take that example. You decide that you've, you know, you had enough of this. I don't care. I'm taking the first two weeks in January off because I'm taking that ski vacation. So there, right? Um, so now I'm not firing you. I'm not saying goodbye to you because you violated the time off policy. I'm saying goodbye to you because that's really bad judgment. Right. Right. And that's not a being a responsible member of the team. <laughs> Why? You know, and I don't and now I can't count on you because I don't know if at the last minute you're just going to walk away. So actually, I don't really want you on my team. Right. And it's not because you violated the policy. Right. I don't have to protect myself from you. And, you know, and I should be able to find out beforehand when I interview you. You know, where you're like, you know, well, I'm really glad. I, I, people tell me this. People tell you this stuff, right? Uh, what are you looking forward to? What do you like best about the company? I love the idea that I can take time off whenever I want because, like, I've never had a ski vacation. Now I'm coming here. I'm taking the first two weeks in January off. <laughs> and I can say. You could take oh, all of January not... off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you don't even have to be here because you won't be here in January, right? But, but, those, but that's what I was saying earlier. 
those are the questions that we should be asking people in the interview process to determine how much people are okay with that level of responsibility. And it, it actually, you know, it, it, the, all these pieces fit together because one of the most critical things you do, policy or not, is to create um, clarity of expectations and clarity of alignment in order to make sure that everybody's moving in the same direction. And if you're keeping everything secret, your job to create alignment. I remember when I was in high school and we were, you know, fighting for something. I can't remember what I was fighting for, but I think it was like to get out of the building. And we, I grew up in New York and, and, and the head of the school, you know, I was in this heated meeting with him and I was an advocate for the students. And he goes, look, there's stuff you don't know about that you, you know, that, that, that makes that impossible. And I'm like, well, then tell me about it tell and us. then we can have yeah. a conversation about it. And that's yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. And, and, and that's hard to let go of. Right. That's hard. So that's why bigger, older companies have a harder time doing. That's what I'm saying. It's like so not only is this the way we've always done it, but in HR, particularly when we do stuff the way we've always done it, we call it best practices. Right. Right. <laughs> right. We don't measure it. Right. It's like, well, these are best practices and the employee's supposed to go, oh, th thank you. And never ask why. Right. Right. Like like uh, um, compensation makes me crazy. Right. The uh, the compensation survey that everybody uses to benchmark their jobs against other companies, jobs. And I, so I say to HR people, I'm like, so tell me about your comp. Tell me about your compensation. Well, we target in the 65th percentile. I'm like, OK, that's a budget reason. So first of all, let me be your employee. Who gets the other 35 percent? Right. Well, that's not what percentile means. I'm like, I know that. You know that. And no one else in the whole world knows that. Right. And oh, by the way, you can't say we hire only A players and we pay in the 65th percentile in the same sentence. Right. Because right? The, other, the people who get the other 35 percent are over at Google or over at like some or other, wherever, or Netflix right? or wherever. And right? oh, by the way, you, don't, you may not need that player in every single role, you may need them in some role, but, but let's, let's go back to my premise, right? Okay. So that compensation survey that you use to determine what the right 65th percentile is for each and every job title in your organization. Can I see it? Can I see the data that you're using to determine my salary? Oh no, that's, that's confidential. Oh, hey, let's take salary. Let's take salary. I remember being in an executive meeting. I'm like, you know, what? I think we should be more transparent about salary. I think it's just one thing. It's the last vestige of like, we got to keep it secret stuff. And the executives would say, oh, you know, oh my God, there'll be revolt. People will be really upset. It's really going to, you know, it's going to be so disruptive. You know, people won't like it. And I said, because, but we can see everybody's salary because we're executives and we're really smart and smarter than the average bear. And we're used to seeing big numbers. And so it doesn't bother us. Oh, oh, oh and everybody in payroll can see it because what, they're not very smart. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they know it's just numbers. And by and the way, everybody who goes to Glassdoor can see it because yeah, it's all online. Yeah, oh, no, no, yeah, no. Or every, or every, you know, engineer in the world loves to hack into the salary database. So they can find out they make more than other people. Um, but you know, what we're, what we're, what we're really afraid to be transparent about in salary is why, why do I make more than you? Why do, well, more, more often, why do you make more than me? Right. Right. I just did this talk with this group of HR people, 1,500 of them, and I I'm like, the door's closed. It's just us, and I'm one of you. Fix equal pay. 
I mean, three most female-dominated departments in any company, HR, finance, and sales and marketing. Okay, like, if you don't own pay, who does? Right. Right? So, like, write some checks. Who are you waiting to give you permission to do right by compensation? And has it occurred to you that the very systems that we women made up keep keep us down? Right. Like, we're screwing ourselves. Like, it's time. Find your power. <laughs> fix. Just fix it. Just, you know, a whole lot of stuff's going to get fixed when people start making what they're worth, right? Just saying. So, um, I, you know, there's that's sort of for me is that's an example where I want to say you don't have the power to fix pay. You own, you own compensation, right? So the way we've always done it isn't fair. It's not best practices. It's not the, it's not the best to have women make 90 cents to every guy's dollar. That's not fair. It's not, right? So We should call it past practice, not best practice. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's deep into my philosophy, which is, really, it's best? Really? Are you sure? How'd you measure that? I love it. Patty McCord, her book is powerful. You can tell that it comes from a deep and honest place when you listen to her talk, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. Patty, thank you so much for writing the book and thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast. If you did, it would really help us if you subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. A common problem that I see in companies is a lot of busyness, a lot of hard work that fails to move the organization as a whole forward. That's the problem that we solve with our Big Arrow process. For more information about that or to access all of my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you, Claire Marshall, for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.